Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Hello podcast listeners, just a note to say that Living Well Feminist is available in all good bookstores, so please make sure to go and get your copy. The other thing is that the sound today had a few glitches, but it's totally worth listening to, so I hope you enjoy. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Dr. Anya Fenter. Anya, or Nana, as she's known to family and friends, considers herself as an astronaut working at the intersections of art, culture, and technology. She has a degree in visual communication, a master's degree in media studies, and a PhD in information communications technologies for development. Her PhD looked at how digital creative tools, particularly those on mobile devices, can assist in democratizing visual design capabilities. She currently works as a postdoctoral fellow at the Cape Peninsula University of Technology in the Department of Applied Design. In 2016, Anya was listed by Vizzy in their Artists We Love section, and it's very easy to see why. She has worked as a lecturer in digital illustration, user-centered design, media theory and research, and interactive media. She's also worked in game development as an interactive media creative consultant, and her CV goes on and on. Anya has, as she describes it, made pictures for a variety of platforms and purposes, from commercial work to comics, games, and apps. She's also written articles, opinion pieces, and comics. I'm going to share all of the details of her website at the end of this podcast so you can visit her shop and buy yourself some of her fantastic art. But the reason we're chatting today is because Anya published her piece, Fuck You and Your Feminism, in Feminism Is, back in 2018. Her piece describes some of the dangers of dating while feminist and the problematic ideas many people still have about what it means to be one. In that piece, she says... Feminism is a belief system. It's not a club or a cult or a reading group. Your lived experience of it might, of course, underscore which clubs or cults or reading groups you frequent, but the definition of the cause is not limited to those embodied spaces or experiences. I fundamentally believe that you don't have to agree with the politics to agree with the cause. Feminism is about the will to engage. Feminism is a battle cry for an open mind and an aspiration for a better less unequal world. How that looks in your everyday life is as diverse as everyday life on this planet. So welcome, Anya. Thank you so much. Wow. (laughs) That was quite quite a long introduction. You're very impressive. (laughs) Thank you for covering it, covering it so (laughs) thoroughly. Um, Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's been two years since your piece was published in Feminism Is, and I know when I go back to look at my old writing, I'm always like, half, wow, did I write that? And half, what are all these things that I forgot to say? Can you tell me a bit about what feminism looks like in your life today and how you feel about the piece all these years later? Yeah, sure. I I actually just read it now for the first time. uh, Yeah, it must be since, since right after the book came out. Like I said at the end of the article, you know, it's like feminism to me really is this this will to engage and to constantly kind of challenge yourself and to think how do we work towards a more equal and fair world. 
Um, and I think so to answer your first question, that's what feminism still looks like in my life. And then to answer the second question, how do I feel about uh, the article now? Um, there's a lot of things that I would like to update, uh, but it's out in the world and I guess it's how I felt at the time. I think I've, I've become a lot less um, militant about my, my own feminism too. You know, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy from my from my article that uh, that feminism does look different to everyone. And, and it's more interesting to kind of hear about what feminism looks like to other people than necessarily just defending your own version of it. I mean, it's interesting that you, see, you use the word militant because in your piece you speak about how the 90s era riot girls introduced you to feminist ideals in a way. Can you tell me a bit more about uh, who those women were and what that, how that influence filters through into your current feminism or your present reality? The reason why I was so attracted to, uh, you know, those particular, like that girl gang, if you will, uh, at the time that the 90s riot girls like Kathleen Hanna and Courtney Love um, was because I was in this Afrikaner enclave in the northern suburbs where uh, gender roles are very prescriptive and um, it's a very sort of Calvinist Christian um, sort of upbringing and I just wanted to uh, set fire to everything which I think was <laughs> very similar to how those women um, you know, sort of felt about uh, the treatment of women uh, in the punk scene in America at the time. Um, Kathleen Hanna had this sort of battle cry where she would say, girls to the front, uh, because the girls always got um, kind of smushed in the, in the mosh pits. And she just wanted to uh, give sort of visibility and safety to women who also enjoyed the music. And I think that kind of inclusivity um, and the fact that Girls could be uh, badass and challenging, and uh, you know, perfect little wives <laughs> was uh, was um, very aspirational for me coming from Belleville at the time. I suppose, like what you were saying earlier, like feminism now, there's a clear understanding that it isn't one definition doesn't fit all, and so we get like a lot more diverse reflections of people. And I've been speaking to a lot of younger feminists over the last few weeks, and it's interesting to me that they say oh when so-and-so said they were feminist I could see myself and I suppose it's the same thing that what that happened with you seeing those 90s bright girls was you were like yes that's me I could be like that and like these are there's other ways to be which is the power of feminism um <laughs> one of the ways that feminism also tends to challenge the ideas of, of ways to be is just is in dating and you speak your piece speaks a bit about dating whilst feminist in your piece, you're introduced to some people, some people introduce you to someone who they think you might like, and you make a comment about the, the gender roles at this party you're at, and then he turns on you and says, please don't tell me you're a feminist. And um, why do you think it's important to write about those moments where you are met with this fake presentation of feminist ideals? Why did you feel like that was a, a point to write about? I think firstly, it had happened quite recently, the me running into this person again, nine years after that first encounter. Uh, so it happened quite uh, recently while I was sort of uh, writing the paper. And I think I was um, thinking a lot about uh, identifying as feminist and how, you know, at the time and now even it's sort of, you know, Beyonce is a feminist. And, you know, a lot of people have come out as feminists and it's no longer this sort of hectic swear word or makes you seem like a you know a man hater um but for a lot of people it is still that 
And uh, for this guy specifically, I think um, there was something about about the fact that there, despite all of this progress, there are many people who believe that women should be a certain way and that men should be a certain way. And they live in this very, very binary world that doesn't have space for, um, you know, sort of the wide spectrum of genders and sexualities that we actually have. You know, it's not it's not an opinion. It's a fact. <laughs> people aren't don't just fit into these uh, neat boxes. And I think for a lot of people, despite their uh, personal politics or the way they express themselves, um, what they see on the Internet, the communities that they're part of. That is still very often, particularly in South Africa, the people you have to actually deal with at parties. And it's, um, you know, it's infuriating having someone like that um, yelling at, I mean, he yelled at me at a party like, fuck you and your feminism. <laughs> and I was just like, what? What? This is, uh, you know, firstly, you're very beautifully demonstrating toxic masculinity right now. Um, but uh, yeah, also it's, it's just, uh, I was... Uh, flabbergasted that that day so I thought it was a, a good story to share yeah because I think it's happened to all of us when we've like you've, especially the part I love the part where you said I cried out of anger and I was angry that I was crying because I think everyone who's been trying to promote any social justice cause whether it's feminism or anything else will have had that feeling of being stuck and unable to express yourself and unable to believe that this is happening and um, but I, I was thinking a lot about like why I, I sort of get really angry at myself for crying in that moment. And I wonder why you why you think that you felt angry that you were crying or that it was somehow the wrong emotional response to give. So I think firstly, it was it was sort of um, it was a bit of a scene. <laughs> you know, I, I'd seen this person again for the first time in a long time and I walked up to them and, you know, I'm I'm a, sort of a trained ethnographer so I often tend to go with the trouble a bit and, and go ask people like hey how do you feel about that thing now or like I heard you know that you were doing this thing how does that feel and um and I was very like I remember sitting opposite him with my glass one and I was like oh my god how are you do you remember this night that we had like it's really struck with me and and I wonder how you feel now and he has um response was so angry and so aggressive and like I said one of someone else was like you know it, it's not it's not about you he had a really bad experience with a feminist on tinder last night um, and the story was something along the lines of he had gone on a date with this person and uh, she just kind of tore him apart for being quite sexist um, and so I think he he's very triggered by feminism but it was it was really infuriating that I as a yeah, you know, a PhD can go up to this person with this very sort of lovely, delightful demeanor and just be like, hi, how are you? You know, remember this thing. And that someone can act with such aggression and such violence in, in front of members of my family, in front of my friends. And my first reaction, because a part of you is kind of scared, uh, was to sort of start crying kind of angrily. And, and I, I guess I was angry that I was crying that I couldn't take that as a sort of either a teaching opportunity or have some kind of sassy comeback or win in, in a way that wasn't me kind of falling back into this sort of kind of victim. <laughs> I, I should also even shouldn't say that because it's like I, I was kind of a victim of his anger, right? And it's, mm. um, it's, you know, it's natural to cry when someone is aggressive towards you. But I guess I was frustrated that, that I couldn't win 
him in that moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I related so much to that particular portion of all the arguments that, that I feel like. Also, for me, the more if I'm in an argument and the issue really matters to me, I can feel that emotional response building. And it does feel like a betrayal of my body in some way that it doesn't want to just proceed logically ahead. Um, right? But also, yeah. like you're saying, like, the only reason that I think that is because I've been conditioned to think that crying when someone is so aggressive towards you is not a normal response when we know that it is from childhood. It's something that's, you know, gendered out of us. So it's so, it's so complex. But I mean, the piece as well touches on something really important and you describe um, the idea of male tears and the problem of it. And I thought it was really wonderful how you explained about male tears that after all, the term male tears as an irreverent popular culture trope doesn't draw on the occurrence of actual male tears, but rather the prioritization of hurt male feelings in the face of very real violence that women face on a daily basis. So do you think um, it's necessary to bring men into the feminist movement or to expose them to feminist ideas? And how do we get past the male tears problem? Absolutely. I think one of my, my mentor who passed away, his son um, posted this thing about how many young boys uh, commit suicide and how up until the age of nine, boys and girls tend to cry at the same amount. And then at some point we tell little boys that they're no longer allowed to express their feelings. And when they can't express those feelings, they end up being depressed and killing themselves. And it's, you know, feminism is for men too. This, this idea that, um, that embodying your manhood should uh, mean that you can't cry, that you have to be tough, that you shouldn't talk about your feelings, that you can't be friends with women, that you aren't allowed to express yourself creatively in a way that's not hyper-masculine is, is really, really damaging. And it's real problems among young men and, I mean, old men, everyone. Um, so I definitely think feminism is 100% for men uh, too. So then when you're talking with men who might not see it that way, what would your advice be for, you know, some of the younger feminists who are listening who haven't been through the mill of all the standard arguments that you get? Like what would be your starting point to help show a man who's maybe not super receptive but isn't antagonistic how this is an issue for him? I don't know if you, I don't know if you should um, spend your energies on those kinds of conversations. Listen, if someone is going to be uh, even slightly receptive I think uh, kindness and gentleness is always the way. Um, but if someone is going to um, tell you that, you know, you're being uh, pushy or <laughs> that, uh, you know, the fuck you and your feminism, then just exit the conversation. And those people, hopefully eventually the truth will come out for them in their lives. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's really difficult, a really difficult question to, to answer because I think... Um, a lot. I mean, my husband is, uh, I often joke that my husband is uh, like a bigger feminist than I am. Um, <laughs> and that's like, you know, I, I have these super, I've trained my younger cousins and brother very well. They're all these, uh, you know, um, absolutely uh, lean into uh, feminist ideals and talk about their feelings and go for therapy and, you know, try and be good to um, you know, the, the women in their lives and uh, support women and the people closest to you are obviously the easiest places to start. Um, I wouldn't recommend to any young feminists to go into a bar and try and convert 
um, some kind of toxic man sitting there. Definitely. I think there's there's two sort of things that you're touching on. And the one is that the, someone has to be open to the truth that you're sharing with them for them to be able to receive it. Um, and the other is that, you know, we, we live in South Africa. It's not always safe to get into an argument. Um, so there's a, a, a sensible thing around picking your battles. I heard this very useful thing last night on one of the many internet things I was watching that was, there's three types of truth. There's personal truths, political truths, and objective truths. And if someone you're talking to's objective truth is that women are less, you are wasting your time and you should save your energy on your feminist argument for someone who you might win over to the movement. And so I fully agree with you. Um, Absolutely. Let's talk about your art a little bit. Uh, Full disclaimer, I am not cool. And I don't know any of the right terms to describe different types of art, but I only know (laughs) that I like yours very much. So how would you describe the creative work that you do and what influence feminism has on that, if any? Oh, so, I mean, huge influence. I... uh, I would describe my art, I guess, somewhere between sort of pop art and sort of lowbrow pop surrealism um mostly i mean the the art that i make for myself uh that is sort of my um my own personal work uh, often revolves around um i guess women characters i i like to explore sort of the the broad spectrum of i guess sort of different feminine identities so often it's also it's quite sci-fi and mixed with like I don't know, aliens and weird creatures and things like that. I, I guess it's quite fantastical. Um, and a lot of the work that I do, including uh, comics and stuff, um, is sort of uh, these imaginary worlds, either futuristic worlds or, um, I guess, sort of alternate realities where uh, thing, everything's lovely and uh, people are equal and well, women with three eyes aren't <laughs> are completely normal. Um so yeah, I think that from, from my personal work, then I do a, a lot of commissions of families. I think feminism inspires my work because I'm feminist. <laughs> I don't know if I could, <laughs> if I could make, I mean, I, I, I have these patches that I saw that say Jurassic patriarchy and things like that. It's weird that that's not the first thing that comes to mind. Um, but yeah, I guess it bleeds through in my work. It's just like, I believe in this world where there's absolute gender equality and where um, you know patriarchal ideal, ideals die out eventually because dinosaurs will die and mm. uh, people can be weird and lovely and quirky and just exist in however they want so yeah that's awesome <laughs> um, <laughs> I also really love the designs that you've done recently for some books so you've done the cover for Sandvik Bessinger's book How to Manage Your Money Like a Fucking Grown-Up and Lauren Bukes's Afterland and then The Shining Girls is that yeah. something that you see yourself doing some more of? Oh, yes, I'd love to. Uh, obviously, for books that I like. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, I, I love book cover design. Um, it's such a cool process working with authors and working with, with publishers um, and also being able to, like, read entire books and then kind of think about what images come to mind. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed that, particularly working with uh with Lauren on Afterland ended up being quite a, a long drawn out process, um, but very, very well worth it in the end when we got the final design together and everyone was happy with it. 
but yeah, I'd, I'd love to do more, more book covers. So anyone who's out there writing a book, book hit me up. <laughs> also, congratulations on being a doctor. Can you tell us a bit more about your PhD and what it means to democratize visual design? My my PhD, um, I was based in the Center for Information Communications Technologies for Development at UCT, uh, which technically is in their computer science department. Um, so a lot of like the the reason why I was kind of in there is because my my old mentor uh, Gary Marsden, who is a human computer or was a human computer interaction um, sort of one of the sort of prominent researchers in the field, um, he said, you know, there's all of this really interesting kind of, you know, it's a lab that researches uh, digital technologies, but there's all these really interesting um, cultural things that are happening. Um, and so having someone from a kind of a media studies background and from a visual communication background that can make sense of how people use technologies to participate in visual culture or, or sort of I guess cultural production in the city of Cape Town would be a really interesting PhD topic. And so he got me funding from uh, Microsoft. Well, initially it was Nokia and then later uh, Microsoft bought up Nokia. But for three years I was fully funded and could could do this amazing um, research. And yeah, the focus of it was essentially this question of like, everyone's always talking about the mobile miracle in Africa and how mobile devices are going to like revolutionize the way that people, particularly resource constrained people in Africa are able to participate um, on the digital web. And um, for like the sort of, all of these great promises and all of this optimism, there's really like a dearth of scholarship that actually explores that kind of thing. And if you're gonna make statements like that, you need to, um, like mobile phones actually need to allow people to either make a living or to access resources that allow them to do so. So my study looked at young uh, designers who came from low resource backgrounds, I look particularly at kids who are on NSFAS funding in uh, sort of uh, extended curriculum programs for visual design. So that's sort of like a, not entirely a bridging course, but it's a pre-first year. Um, so that's sort of a catchment area for kids who didn't necessarily have visual arts at school or um, who might be, you know, who, who don't have the kind of the training that would allow them to go straight into doing visual design. And I wanted to see how mobile devices um, help them in that process, um, help them with visual literacy, help them create communities, uh, help them gain access to creative work. And so a lot of my research was essentially just sort of like uh, case studies about how kids we're creating fashion labels and starting up micro enterprises and you know doing commissions to help them buy materials for university um and this this really complex ecology pretty much bottom line is like mobile devices are great because uh, for the first time uh, you, you have this generation of young people who are able to participate and create uh, popular culture uh, who can actually show us what their worlds look like through things like mobile photography and editing apps and participation on the visual web. But at the end of the day, um, their lives are still measured or their digital online lives and creative lives are measured in tariffs for data and are measured in access to, um, you know, good, good mobile uh, coverage and what kind of phone they have and safety, being able to walk around with phones. And there's all of these factors that developers have technology certainly need to take uh, into account if they're if they want to develop uh, for those kinds of contexts.
And yeah, that's pretty much my thesis. <laughs> Sounds very interesting and well done for summarizing <laughs> what's probably a very complex thing done into a sound yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder if you found any gender differences in sort of the use and access, because I'm thinking now about what you're saying about all the conditions that have to be there for the potential of these technologies to be used. And I've just been finished doing some research earlier this year that was looking at um, women's access to things like the internet and I mean it's one thing to say you have access to the internet in your home but if the internet quality is very poor or you're using a dodgy I mean I don't want to say the t-word but if you're using telecom or you have some other lower grade you know thing it, it's going to affect what you can produce did you find anything that showed any big gender differences or was it pretty much based on economic access um yeah, so I mean, firstly, economic access, I would say, in, in visual arts, there tend to be more um, more young women uh, enrolled for these courses. Um, but then when, after like that sort of economic uh, filter, <laughs> um, it's far more likely from resource-constrained families, it's far more likely um, that people send their sons to university and that the boys kind of get access to these technologies, get access to laptops. Um, a lot of the young girls said, you know, like, I, I never learned how to use a computer because our school didn't have computers and the boys wouldn't allow me to use a computer because they were also always playing games, which I, I felt very, you know, was very relatable for me to um, being kind of kicked out of boys' spaces. Um, but so access to technology, is still very very gendered and sort of yeah I guess uh, low income uh, spaces in South Africa and so the, the other aspect um, that gender was was really prominent in was sort of mobility um, is young girls very frequently dropped out of sort of visual arts courses because um, they didn't feel safe <laughs> uh, working late in studios or staying on in the library until whatever time they needed to be there to be able to pass their courses. Um, so yeah, that, that was a major eye opener is just like how physically dangerous it is for young women to actually um, attend university. Uh, if you're kind of making the commute from Googs every day, um, mm. that's, that's quite, quite an undertaking to be able to um, stay late and do the studio work uh, and all of this stuff or, um, there was a lot of, uh, one of my sort of case studies is of a student who ended up failing one of her courses um, because her project was so dirty and she said it was horrible because she had to make the choice whether she was going to take her work home with her, but at home she's got three younger siblings and someone jumped on her project and she had to take it in the taxi and then on the train and then by the time it got to class it was completely ruined, um, but she had to do do that to try and finish it because if she left it in the studio then she would have had to work late and had to take transport late and things like that you know so all of these all of these strategies um that these kids employ to try and uh, participate often through the lens of um the sort of the institution and what's deemed a uh, good practice or, or a good project um doesn't translate because the sort of the infrastructure is so different yeah like systemic gender inequality then feeds into very specific gender inequality and outcomes yeah absolutely wow that's really really interesting um 
So I wanted to ask, I was reading a whole bunch of stuff about you on the internet, like a creepy stalker, and I saw somewhere that you are working on your first novel. Am I allowed to ask about that? Oh, yeah, it's a scary <laughs> one. It's a scary one because I have friends like Lauren Beakers, um, who keep asking me, so how far is the novel? And like, I'm just absolutely mortified. I told her, you know, she can maybe read it in like three years when I've written like five drafts. Um, but yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm absolutely not a, a trained creative writer, <laughs> um, but I love, I, I love sci-fi and I love uh, telling stories and reading stories. So I'm working on this kind of, I, I guess the appropriate term would be new adult because it's not entirely young adult. The characters are about, um, it's sort of a coming of age story set in the year 2064 um, in a world where um, the sort of climate change and uh, sort of the general <laughs> apocalypse happening around us has sort of come to the kind of fruition where people are living in veiled cities um, so that they're sort of like underneath almost like domes but they're veils um, and there's this one tech company that runs the interface through which citizens interact with the world and, and yeah our story follows um, our hero, Neely Marsden, who uh, yeah, figures out that uh, something is rotten in the state of Abbeyvale, which is the, uh, yeah, the name of the book. And yeah, I think that's about as much as I'm comfortable <laughs> talking about. Um, but yeah, it's, it's sort of like a mixture of everything that I love um, in popular media from sort of uh, punk rock to sort of, you know, irreverent comedies. Um, and yeah sci-fi um my my elevator pitch at one point was that it's mean girls but set in 1984 oh my god you're gonna get a bunch of fans if they put that on the cover <laughs> um but i mean it's so interesting yeah. to me to listen to you because i'm think i'm imagining when i write i it often starts with a character and i'm thinking for you of how visually minded you are and how when you the images that you create the ones that you share that are not explicitly commissioned, it's very clear that those characters have a whole story in your mind. So do you picture things visually first and then write them or does the writing, do you build as you're going? Uh, yeah, I think it's a bit of a back and forth. Um, I just cleared out my studio uh, this week and I was like, oh yeah, I found the floor plans of, of the Marsden house, um, <laughs> which is like, I've I've drawn out the three-story floor plans of the household so that I can remember what this, you know, the size of the rooms and which window looks out over which direction. And um, so I guess I am very visual. I've I, I mapped out the entire city and uh, the places before even starting telling the story. Um, with characters, I think it's it's actually ironically quite difficult because I had an idea for what the characters were like. Um, starting out and I didn't really know what they looked like yet um, but I eventually I, I sort of printed out actors and you know people from the internet that I was like oh that I guess that's kind of what she would look like um, now at the point where I'm writing sort of a lot more dialogue and stuff where I really need to be able to hear their voices um, so yeah it's a I guess I mean you could obviously relate to this it's like a total cult um, situation where the pieces kind of just come together as they come together and you need to f always find new ways to sort of find a, f a fresh perspective so whether that's 
drawing a map or sketching a character or googling weird locations yeah yeah I mean there's so much of writing that never gets into a book and that you have to know as the writer that is really irrelevant to anyone reading it and you sometimes can tell in in books where the person just wanted to put it in because you know it was like a real thing for them um but it's just it's such a wholly consuming creative process that's I'm really excited and I can't wait to read your book sounds really great already so in a what few I, years it takes like forever to write a book I wish people yeah, understood yeah. that more <laughs> I think writers would get a lot more societal praise if people realized it was like four years of your life and people read it in a weekend <laughs> six yeah, no, it's so depressing yeah. my poor husband just released his video game and they worked on it for three years and it's it's a like a 25 minute playthrough and I was just like shame there's all this build up and then people kind of finish it like before before he can blink you know shame yeah. so mean, yeah writing is very similar yeah but it's amazing that you're going to be able to combine combine your two the two parts of your creative self because I don't think there is just one part anyway so well done on well done on starting and good luck on finishing thank you <laughs> so I have three quick questions <laughs> to end off <laughs> we all need it yeah um, three quick questions to end off that I'm asking everyone who comes on the podcast the first yeah. is a book that has inspired your feminism or perhaps given your essay you know a song or anything creative that has inspired your feminism Whew. okay so um I have to give a shout out to uh Kathleen Moran <laughs> who I know is sort of a she's sort of the the um she's sort of like a like a everyday feminist you know very relatable and has a very broad reach and maybe isn't always um I, I know that she has some blind spots but I truly, truly enjoy her work. And she has been one of those people that even for, I mean, I still have friends, like very close friends who don't necessarily identify as, as feminists, who say like, you know, like, yeah, I, I agree with feminism, but I'm not gonna go out and be a feminist. Um, and being able to give them uh, Kathleen Moran's really accessible, um, really sort of gentle introductions to ideas around feminism um, has been made a world of difference in terms of those conversations. So Kathleen Moran's How to, yeah, how to Be a Woman, How to Build a Girl, uh, How to Be Famous. Um, yeah, I'm a very big fan. Yeah, I, I think she has a quote that I love where it's like, are oh, you a feminist? If you reach your hands down your pants and you want to be in control of that, then yes, you are. Yes, <laughs> you know? yeah. And I think, I think the, so the, one of the reasons why I say, you know, she's got some blind spots is I think that quote read, like, put your hands in your pants. Do you have a vagina and do you want to be in control of it? If the answer to both is yes, then certainly you're a feminist. Yeah. And I think, you know, that, that needs a bit of an edit in this day and age because not all women have vaginas um but uh, yeah I think I think the thing that I absolutely appreciate about her is that she is so open to debate and criticism and adjusting her views and you know she just feels like this very relatable accessible person yeah. and I love I love her work and she's very funny as well which is like does millions of things successfully for people who think feminists are not funny which we all know not is not true and she is yes. hilarious and yeah. do you have a quote that inspires you or that motivates you 
Ooh, okay, yes, I went to go find this today. Um, so I recently started reading uh, Donna Haraway's Staying with the Trouble, Making Kin in the Cthulhu Scene. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with Donna Haraway, but no. uh, so she is the, um, a member of this sort of what you would call the social uh, science and technologies or science and technology studies. Um, but she is a feminist and she is a uh, scientist. Um, and so she looks a lot at the role of, um, I guess, technology um, in sort of the, the future that we're going to have and how to sort of craft equality in this world. And in staying with the trouble, um, which I think is also just such a great uh, like she talks about staying with the trouble as this thing of like if something feels uncomfortable you know there's a problem there and you need to figure it out so stay with the trouble and keep going because um, that's that's where the interesting thing come interesting things come from um, and this book essentially is sort of a um, she had a the cyborg the feminist cyborg manifesto was one of her famous books <laughs> and then this one is a bit more about um, creating a sort of a uh, Interest, not interspecies, but like that, that all species in the world, sort of this like ecological view of, of equality in the future. And this quote from it, which I thought was really great, um, is, I'm just going to read it. It matters what matters we used to think other matters with. It matters what stories we tell to tell other stories with. It matters what nots, not nots, what thoughts think thoughts what descriptions describe descriptions, what ties tie ties. It matters what stories make make worlds, what worlds make stories. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's sort of this idea that I think Judith Butler also <laughs> gets a lot of this criticism of, you know, that she, she makes the everyday too weird. But <laughs> I think we need that weirdness. We need to, we need to question um, the sort of the fundamentals of how the world exists and, you know, whether that's uh, semantics or pronouns or expressions or even how we view, uh, you know, things like labor. Um, we, we need to kind of question everything. <laughs> uh, and I think that uh, part of the sort of the purpose of, of feminism is this idea that nothing is, nothing uh, is sort of static. Everything can change. Yeah, so, yeah. that's a really amazing quote. So then you've given quite a lot of advice in the piece and in this discussion today. Do you have any last bit of advice for feminists starting out on their journeys? Yeah, be kind and compassionate, I guess. Uh, that's a bit of a, a bit of a cheat because it's the sign-off of uh, myself and my friend Dimpo Moretti's podcast, where we end our podcast every time saying, be kind, be compassionate, don't be a dick. Um, <laughs> but I think just... Rem be, be kind and compassionate with yourself as well and understand that you're not going to be you're not always going to do the right thing you are going to fuck up you are going to uh, say the wrong thing to the wrong person you are going to stake your claim and it's going to be mortifying in a few years um, but always be open to change and always be open to sort of like mold yourself and um, yeah just roll with the punches yeah basically allow yourself human growth <laughs> Yes. Very good advice for everyone. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and for your work. And I'm really excited for your book when it comes out. 
even if it is in the year 2064, I will be waiting for it. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you very, very much for your time and for your peace in feminism and the work that you do. It's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Jen. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.